You're listening. You're listening to a University of Kentucky. University of Kentucky. College of Arts and Sciences podcast. In part two of a four-part series, this Transnational Lives podcast focuses upon social theory, language, and society, and the roles they play in diversity. In this podcast, Cheryl Means, Anna Stone, and Jonathan Tennant speak with Otto Santa Anna about his work within sociolinguistics, his focus on English and Spanish, and how his interest in this field began. Good morning. Hi, good morning. It's good to have you. Um, just for the sake of introductions, we have Dr. Otto Santa Anna here, um, and we will be interviewing him about his relationship to social theory, asking him a few questions about his talk, uh, The Cowboy and the Goddess, that he gave yesterday, and um, asking him about his up-and-coming research and his uh, work in the uh, Cesar Chavez uh, Chicano Chicana Studies Department at UCLA. And you have to identify yourselves, too. Um, I'm Cheryl Felicia Means, and I am a second-year doctoral student an interdisciplinary PhD in Education Sciences program out of the College of Education here at UK. I'm Anna Stone and I'm a first year English PhD student. I'm Jonathan Tennant, second year English PhD student. Yes. Um, so first of all, we wanted to start by asking you um, kind of your definition of, of social uh, study, of social, social theory. theory. Mm-hmm. Well, the definition, you guys, that uh, that the director provided yesterday, is far and away a better present, a uh, better definition than I would ever give. So you could use that piece because it was, I mean, it's 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 trying to make sense on a large scale. So uh, social theory is uh, our effort to make sense of our world uh, at a level which is cohesive and comprehensive. That uh, anticipate can potentially anticipate or at least describe um, the circumstances in which we live. I mean, it's the it's writ large. It's a very large sort of concept. Yeah. I don't know how to narrow it, and so I'm uh, and I'm always impressed that people attempt to undertake something like that. But that's fundamentally what we do, and in, in uh, as as scholars. Seeking knowledge, mm. so you just labeled it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, how or do you employ a social theory framework within your own research? Um, and can you speak a little bit to um, just the rel- I mean, the relevance of social theory and what it is that you do? Well, see, I didn't come about it by thinking, "Oh, I'm going to do social theory." Okay. I mean, I'm I'm not a theorist. I'm an empiricist, and um, the communities that I come from, there's major issues that that have plagued our society and our community uh, ever since, I mean, that I've seen as long as I've been around in our history. So I've just dealt with the issues of, I began thinking about my second cousin, his name is Chinto, and uh, I realized that there were differences in 
the education of people who were my family, uh, who were my, uh, that some children were uh, treated differently because of the way they spoke. Uh, some spoke with a Spanish accent, some had relatively limited English. Since I grew up with, uh, my dad spoke mostly English, my mom spoke mostly Spanish when we, we were little. Uh, as children, I grew up with both languages, and so my phonology, as it turns out, this is in hindsight, I was able to, uh, I was attended to, the teacher responded to me differently than they did to other students in the class who had the right answer. I always sat behind the kids that were smart, so I wouldn't be able to make sure I got the right answer, you know, and uh, they'd raise their hand, and I would raise my hand, and since I, the teacher would differentially choose me, in lots of lots of the uh, students who are second language learners are not given credit for their what they have in in themselves. They're judged um, tacitly as being inferior. So linguistic. Linguistic differences were my entro, uh, my entree into um, injustice. Uh, the kids would drop out of school. Uh, who were the smartest kids in the class? The kids who were the most capable. And at the university, it was all white kids. All the black uh, the black faces I saw were janitors. All the and all the brown faces I saw were gardeners at University of Arizona in the 1970s. And so I actually was uncomfortable going to a professor. And so I actually had my, my college counselor literally was the janitor and the gardener who I sat down with every week because they were gente. They were people I knew. Uh, so as I became more sophisticated in my studies, uh, it all made sense. Mm -hmm that it was the language that was um, commandeering the adult teachers' understandings of who the children were. The, ch the teachers were not aware of, the, of their, their biases. And that's led me to sociolinguistics, and that's why I did work with Bill LeBeau. It was the, the curtain open when Bill LeBeau's um, uh, classic work um, the logic of non-standard English uh, brought me, uh, made everything that was my public school experience uh, clear. That the teachers just presumed that kids who didn't speak standard English were uh, less smart, mm -hmm. less motivated, uh, inferior. That they um, were incapable of, of uh, and then uh, didn't merit equal billing. That's what led me. So it's it's not I, w I was not a theorist. I was I was dealing with real with I was trying to make sense of of uh, inequity that was unjust and and that's what led to me to take my PhD with Bill Above. I was in Mexico when I read this his piece and I said oh my God I've got to I've got to study with this guy and I was lucky enough to be able to uh, work with him. And that's how I, that was my entree. So I'm not a theorist. I'm, 
I'm really an empiricist, uh, a methodologist. One of the questions we had was, how do you see the theme of transnational lives, the theme of the speaker series mm -hmm. and the class, um, fitting within social theory? Or another way of looking at it might be, what kinds of knowledge do you think transnational lives as a study can produce? Well, I mean, we're finally getting to the point where we, I think we're beginning to recognize that homogeneity is um, a fiction. And uh, so we are branching out, and I'm very excited in the 21st century to see people trying to reach to look at all the diversity, actually actively pursuing diversity to see what uh, knowledge we can we can bring to the table that hasn't been given equal access so that we can be richer in our understanding of the world. So, yes, I mean, I uh, it's... Uh, just a few years ago it was bilingualism. Now we think about multilingualism as natural. We used to think it was only male and, and uh, heterosexual that was appropriate and normal. And now normal is far wider. So I don't see that uh, it's just the natural progression, I feel, um, that, uh, that allows us to, uh, to see the world as... as uh, is far more complicated, and uh, we find our similarities um, come out once we recognize that those people who we were ignoring, who were had disappeared, who were effaced from our social world, is are really there and, and standing right next to us. So yeah, transnationalism is is a very appropriate uh, uh, question to be addressing. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm really answering your questions. I'm coming from a very different angle. I'm coming, uh, I mean, the social theory thing is really what throws me because I don't see that I begin with theory. I, I see that we're trying to describe the world more accurately. Clearly, transnationalism is an essential part of our world far more than 100 years ago. And, uh, and so, yes, it's absolutely appropriate that, that you're putting your attention to it. And so you've already spoken a bit about um, what led you to your research area. And yesterday you spoke with a class about the founding of um, Cesar Chavez. And so I was wondering, for the sake of the interview, could you please expand, expand on that a bit? Sure. Um, Chicano studies was like, um, uh, like black studies was a reaction to the white academy. Right. Uh, it was part of the civil rights movement. And Chicanos were uh, marching in the streets in Los Angeles from 68 on to try and, and calling for um, more inclusion. It was high school students and their teachers who did the first marches in LA. And uh, by the mid-70s, Chicano Studies was nominally part of UCLA, but it was always 0% appointments. The faculty were 100% uh, in English, or 100% in sociology, 100% in other disciplines, and so they gave time, if possible, um, without any credit to their career, uh, to this fledgling uh, study. 
that was since it wasn't institutionalized it became very difficult to maintain and uh, the scholars of color were already marginalized in the university so one bright uh, spring day the chancellor of UCLA um, decided to eliminate Chicano studies his timing was impeccable because he chose the day that Cesar Chavez was being buried and so the world was focused on Cesar Chavez and people made this connection Uh, we had 12 students and one faculty member who started a hunger strike in Cesar Chavez's honor at the loss of Chicano studies at UCLA and they went 12 days it became an international scandal that was taking place as these these young people were you know dying in front of them uh, and the faculty the chancellor capitulated he brought seven he pulled seven lines together seven uh, faculty lines and created the the uh, program of course it was uh, because of a political action the department the uh, it took 10 years for our department to become a department although we had a hundred students immediately and we had, we're graduating hundreds of students every year in major. And it took, uh, we've only had now, I've been there 20 years, and this is only our fourth cohort of graduate students coming into our program. So there's been a lot of pushback from more conservative faculty. UCLA is considered to be very liberal, but there is a very, very strong uh, reaction that this is a, we're an upstart all of the faculty that came through are tenured. We were tenured fast and furiously, uh, and we've done very, very well. Um, so there's a great need. Um, and so we did, once we became a department, we sought to name our department the Cesar Chavez Department of Chicano, Chicano Studies. So we're the only named department without a foundation or without any sort of like uh, endowment. It's simply because of the um, the social legacy that that Chavez has provided that gives that gives us our guidance, and so we work under that sort of uh, aegis of um, of social activism uh, and solid scholarship. You know, so we consider ourselves activist scholars. Mm-hmm. I forgot to take my questions out, so thank you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. Um, so we were also wondering what kind of advice, kind of on that note, that you have for the next generation of scholars um, kind of coming up into academia. What do you see as, um, what do you see as the most important thing for us? As uh, graduate students mm-hmm. a- attempting to make your way into the academia? Yes. Yeah. Oh. Um, lead with your heart Mm -hmm. I mean you really have to have a passion I see a lot of people who um, who are I see a lot of people who go into graduate school for the wrong reasons Um, and so I think about undergrads and I deal with a lot of undergrads and a lot of undergrads who want to become medical doctors when they really are uh, intellectually more 
interested in social issues or people want to become uh, lawyers because that's what you should do. That's the only perspective we have. For those of you like yourselves, you've already chosen uh, uh, a far more uh, more nuanced, you have a far more interesting, uh, you're drawing on your own experiences and your needs. Um, and I think that's really the great way of motivating, your, motivating yourself. But you have to be cognizant that that uh, academia is um, is not a meritocracy. Um, it is uh, you have to go in with your eyes open. That there's we often in many many departments reproduce ourselves uh, blindly not attending to the needs of students in the future uh, in terms of work uh, and career. And so um, I'm always very careful to find out, uh, to try to judge uh, a student's capacity and their real motivation. Because if their motivation is true, then they're like myself. I was very willing to run into walls and fail and so I would, uh, at Penn, we were uh, in, the, in the 80s, um, there was very little interest in making sure that people could succeed. If you, if you would succeed, you merited it. If you didn't succeed, well, too bad. And that was sort of the attitude that was taken. I don't see, I think you guys are too important as our future uh, to just allow to be rubble. You guys mortgage your lives, your youth. You mortgage. You went to bed early. My God, you know you uh, you worked until eleven on on your your lists. Uh, you take care of. Uh, uh, you could be doing making lots more money, doing uh, easier things. Have your Saturday nights free. Um, socialize more. Be more connected to the world. And you choose this relatively um, uh, monkish life for a long time. And so I think that's really important that we take, that you recognize that that you're going to have to be far more strategic about making decisions. Uh, the world is much more competitive than it was when I was coming up, and uh, so I I wish you luck and uh, clear-eyed perspectives on what really is out there. We also had. Do you mind if I ask the pedagogical question that we had? Okay. Um, so, so you do a lot of your um, undergrads do research under mm -hmm. you. Yes. What is more? Sure. Water? Oh, I'm fine. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> good idea. Um, and so Cheryl and I were discussing um, one of our biggest challenges with our students is yes, with our undergraduate students is actually um, is. It's teaching them how to research because, in my personal experience, um, majority of my students tend to want to pick something that they already know about, that they're familiar with for the research topic, and it's an understandable impulse. Um, and even in an open-ended kind of class where you're trying to connect them to something that they're interested in, that they're passionate about, again, they tend to gravitate towards what's easy. Right. So what have you what's found? What's easy is for what they know. Right. Okay, so that's two different things. Mm -hmm. So you take what they know and make it find where they don't know. Mm -hmm. So you take them to the edge of what they know, whether it's, um, it's hip-hop or whatever it might well be, something I don't know. 
I ask them to show me what they're interested in. And then, typically, their level of understanding is relatively um, unsophisticated. Mm -hmm. And you see the, the gaps in it, so there's where you begin. So, no, you let them choose their topic, but then you guide their topic. Okay. So if it's, uh, I don't know, uh, what sort of topics do they come up with? Um, Greek life is a big one that they're interested Greek in. Greek life? Mm -hmm. ah, well, then what about the history of Greek life? Oh, that's great. Right? Uh, the, uh, when I was coming up, there were no, there were no sororities of color. There were no fraternities, uh, Chicano fraternities, and now there are, and it freaks me out. So I say, well, why are we going there? How do they do that? What's the importance? No, and I think it's really, really good. I mean, the networking. Uh, what we see at UCLA, the undergraduates who are not connected socially, who don't have any networks of support among their peers, fail. They do not complete their their curriculum. Mm. And so uh, I see that Greek life for, uh, for Chicanos and Chicanas uh, provides this network of support. Uh, now the Chicanas are very much involved in, in, uh, in dealing with sexual harassment mm -hmm. and rape on campus. And they're taking the lead uh, in a way that I'm very proud of because uh, they're self-empowering and insisting on uh, that the university respond and that the system respond, the Greek system respond to the, this, well, you know, this ongoing uh, uh, problem that had been ignored so long. Uh, non, and we also have non uh, non traditional students. Do you deal with non traditional students? I do. I actually have an Iraq vet at this moment. A vet? Mm -hmm. Oh boy, the vets are great. The vets have He's an incredible amazing. different world, He's and that they bring in. An, uh, and so we, if you can provide uh, the tools for the the vet to explore his or her uh, experience, you just give them the tools. You provide the tools, and and they will. They're there. Most, most well, the younger the younger students often are very immature, and that takes some work. But um, but the vets come, and all the transfer students come with, with a far more um, mature perspective mm -hmm. than I was when I was twenty two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so we've kind of gotten <coughs> our. <laughs> Uh, social theory questions done and our you know personal experiences done. Now we're gonna yeah, hop into your. I've evaded them. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna um, hop into your research. Um, and Jonathan had a question about um, brown tide rising and um, one in a hundred and how your work is accepted or or received rather in um, the Mexican American community. Oh. I had the great joy of, of the former student was at a conference of veterans, and there was a vet. I mean, he was a middle-aged guy with uh, his VFW hat on, hmm. and he was reading in my book, Brown Tide Riding, uh, Rising, in the hotel lobby. And so he took a picture and put it on Facebook for me, uh, saying, "Hey, look, there's someone reading your work." So I'm very. I mean, I'm. 
I'm flattered and, and humbled because people do read it. Uh, it's uh, I, uh, I, I don't know what to say beyond that uh, you know it's still in print. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I get little my little baby royalty checks once you know once a year, and then there's a, uh, uh, a tallying of how many people are reading it, or at least buying the book, and it continues to be sold. Um, I mean, you guys had to read it. I, so you, th- yeah, you can buy it for a reasonable price, which shows <laughs> that it's still in print because the the ones that go out of print are like $120. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, even yeah. today, the ones that are brand new are $100. Yes. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, um, that's, that's very, very gratifying. It's very gratifying. I mean, there's, uh, and it's, it's not easy work. It's not easy work to do. When I did Brown Tide Rising, it was, uh, again, trying to make empirical what had been, uh, functionally theoretical without any real basis. <coughs> so L- Lakoff had not really, um, had presumed his interpretations. His interpretations became what was he presumed the world was like. And when I began Brown Tide Rising, I had no idea that the metaphors would be what the metaphors turned out to be in terms of immigrant as animal. That was absolutely a finding. I didn't have that as in my head. I could not have anticipated that. And that's what I really urge people to do. It's a it's difficult work in in so much as we all have our um, expectations about what the the topic will what the metaphors guiding the topic will will be it's automatic because we are consciously considering these issues but if we allow the inductive method to bring up from from the language itself what the metaphors are, we're, I'll be, we're astonished. I'm real now, right now working on some work on uh, what's called uh, birthright citizenship. Mm-hmm. And the metaphors that come were unanticipated. I could not have anticipated what, what they were. So that's, that's the joy. Speaking of metaphors, um, one of the metaphors we've been considering in class well, a set, is thinking about the border between the U.S. and Mexico. Mm-hmm. And various people have described it differently. Some have called it an open wound. Sure. Some have said that it's a scar that's only partially healed. Um, what do you think of this sort of metaphor for the border, uh, or any other metaphors for the border that you've thought about? You should try to consider metaphors as a, as a cluster. When you're trying as scholars to think about the metaphor, uh, Metaphors always foreground some information and, and background others. That's why we're blinded by them. Uh, they become easy to think about because it's, uh, it's, it's, these analogies are shorthands. They are heuristics that we automatically use to make sense of our world. As scholars, you should be thinking about complements of metaphors. So, metaphor, uh, so the scar, uh, that's been used a lot, it also opens up a space that is uh, doesn't exist. It's a third space between two different regions. It might be considered then uh, an alternative region. And so scholars 
uh, Ansaldua, for example, have taken this concept very far. So we think of borderlands as the betwixt and between, uh, but it's an ongoing lived experience for the people on the border. So I would urge you to uh, explore multiple metaphors. Don't be... When we talk about public discourse, we're seeing how people allow the metaphors to uh, simplify our, their thinking, to make e easy assumptions about what the world is all about. As scholars, you are kind of complicating your world. And I would urge you to think about multiple metaphors for any particular issue. Consider se sexuality. Okay. There's only three metaphors that operate in our world about love in English. You know, that's basically uh, Lakoff's old story, right? Uh, that the three metaphors of love are love as, love as war, uh, love as physical passion, and, uh, and so forth. But I'm not, and you can figure out the other one. The, but, but if you actually think about what, what love is all about, it's, it's a far more complicated notion. It's the most important thing in our world. And uh, so I would urge you as in your social theory to try to complement the metaphors, add more of them, uh, draw from other th sources, uh, because each metaphor will give you uh, insight to aspects of that reality uh, that others will not. It will foreground some material to think about, and you should be seeking that that hidden stuff that's 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 not there. So uh, complicate your metaphors, mm. uh, contest them, uh, juxtapose them. All right. <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking actually about a metaphor. I was, I was wondering about the shore as a metaphor for uh, for borders, for boundaries. It's kind of constantly changing, right? It's never the same. There's high tide, there's low tide, and it's I mean it's very much this liminal space where, but it's also kind of cyclical. So I don't know. It's cyclical. It's dynamic. There's tidal pools. There's yeah. different lives. That's where new things are, are generated. I mean, the, the wetlands. Mm. The wetlands become, are the, are the nurseries for all our colleges, so many ecologies. Yeah. Oh yeah, lots of, that's a really good one. Okay, all right. Um, okay. Um, we talked a little bit yesterday um, about kind of um, metaphors that we could use um, instead of the harmful ones that, that are at work, okay. I see. Okay. Um, and so, and you talked about how it was your undergraduates that came up with, yeah, yeah. with those. Um, and so uh, we were wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you kind of see um, creativity um, going into creating metaphors that um, are, are productive that are helpful um, and that are that are nourishing and life-giving mm -hmm. I think I think the best uh, example is in the history of science mm. because we see that science uh, is uh, these models or paradigms that people have operated with if we think about 
uh, cosmology or uh, astrophysics. The metaphors that characterize your, our universe have changed as our understanding of it has deepened. Mm -hmm. And yet each theorist has is is uses metaphor to base their model. And so it's uh, in the history of science there's progressions of more and more uh, encompassing metaphors uh, that uh, reshuffle all the, all the facts into another way, another conceptual schema. So if we take social issues that are, are challenging and are, uh, are problematic in our lives today, we should try to see what those meta what the limitations of those metaphors are and find out what uh, and then mull and be poetic about uh, seeking metaphors that are more encompassing. Um, the example that I gave, of course, was about public education. Public education is understood particularly as um, disassociated. Learning is a, a pathway. Pathway metaphor, uh, our curriculum vita, our, the courses we take, the, the, the battery of exams that we have to pass over, our graduating somehow is linear in its direction, it's volitional in its expectation. And we all accept that. As adults, when you chose your graduate programs, you did that on your own. Okay, you, you incurred debt, you gave up other possibilities, you chose your pathway to try to get your PhD and to go on to academia. That's great as an adult. But in public school, if we use that as metaphor, we're talking about children who are not of age. Um, they are not a majority age, they're, they're children. And yet we impose that framework of success and failure, of volitional responsibility, private responsibility, on a child. So as I said yesterday, if a 14-year-old drops out of school, uh, we wouldn't allow a 14-year-old to get married, to make a mistake of that sort. We would say that that child was immature and not of age to make these adult decisions. And yet we would allow the 14-year-old to drop out of school and say that it's his fault or her fault for having dropped mm -hmm. out, when in fact the child has been pushed out of an institution that does not accommodate that immature human being's needs. Mm -hmm. And so the, we took that metaphor and sought alternative metaphors that would be better suited to the circumstances of the child. And the kids, my undergraduates, got the A's who came up with the idea of cultivating a child like you cultivate an orchard. Yeah. Cultivating or constructing knowledge like you construct a building. Um, those metaphors are very much more apt for the circumstances of our public education system. Because we don't expect a, um, a puppy to become a fully integrated and socialized uh, into a family setting without a lot of training mm. and a lot of love and they make a lot of mistakes Yes, and it's going to be really stinky <laughs> but eventually it's going to be you know, one, a member of the family mm. and, and much more so for children.
we don't provide our children, all our children, um, adequate resources for them to construct uh, mansions of knowledge. You all are here in the university because your circumstances, your families have sacrificed to create uh, the opportunities for you to build mansions of knowledge. And then you are going to uh, take those skill sets and offer your students more than you were offered. Mm. And that's what we should be doing. So those two metaphors of knowledge as construction, uh, teachers as architects and master builders, uh, students as apprentices working to become journeymen, that's a tremendous metaphor that we should use. And likewise, thinking about uh, cultivating, that teachers are love. I mean, if you've ever seen, if you come from agricultural lives, you know, the, the vineyards of California are, every piece of soil is loved. Each vine is considered to be unique. And the vintner talks with love and studies late into the night to learn the science of cultivating bitter crops. And they don't worry that it's going to take 10 years for the first good crop to be produced because they know that long that their, that their children will enjoy the fruit of their labor in cultivating that crop or, or that orchard. And so I think that's how we should consider education mm. in our society, but we don't. So in all circumstances, I think you really should be seeking uh, better metaphors by recognizing the limitations of today's metaphors. Do you guys mind if I ask another question that's not on the list? Okay, really stop me if you if you need to. Um, but that, that so kind you're of the one that chose think. the big dog, right? Yes. <laughs> I can see that. You're a very accommodating husband. Yeah, it was it was his. He's one of the dogs, mm-hmm. and he was small. So. I'm sure. I'm sure um, you put that into his head. <laughs> Um, but I really don't want to run over y'all, so, um, yeah, so you can skip me the next you're really, round. You're, you're very accommodating, too. Yes. <laughs> um, it kind of leads me to a personal question of mine that you were, you seem to be speaking to just now. Um, there seems to be this binary, at, at least in, in the humanities and academia, of um, kind of this tension between um, your own research and between your teaching responsibilities and between uh, research institutions and teaching institutions. Mm -hmm. Personally, I want to be at a teaching institution. I I love my students. And the way that you talk about your students, it's clear that you care really deeply about them. Um, And at the same time, you've also done fantastic work as, as a scholar, really important work, and brought your students into that. So it seems that you've managed to really reconcile that tension. So could you talk a little bit about that? It isn't reconciled. It's, an, it's always ongoing. I mean, there's a lot of students who are uh, who would rather have much more hands-on work. My work is very challenging. If you ever had to try to do a metaphor analysis, uh, it seems easy. Mm-hmm. Conceptually, it's, it doesn't take very much time to understand but in the action, the actual doing the work is where people fail left and right. And some people just don't have access 
like linguists, you have to be particularly oriented toward your language in a certain way to become available, to make, to be able to attend to the form as well as the content of speech. I love being here in Kentucky because one, two of the faculty had these incredible accents. And so I was listening to vowels I had, I'd heard about, but never heard. And then uh, at, at uh, one of the restaurants we went to, uh, the manager had a vowel that I, I had never, I, mean, I didn't even know how to describe it. I was sitting there thinking about it. And so um, I wanted him to talk more. I just wanted him to talk more. Uh, but okay, so that that sort of interest is that is is needed for my students to be able to actually follow what I do. Mm. But not everybody has it. Mm. The people really do not have any attend. They are not able to attend to language. So I fail a lot. I fail a great deal. The students and then you guys were very quiet in my graduate class, right in our seminar. That's what the faculty, all the faculty said. You guys are typically are much more engaged. Yeah, we are. But so I must be intimidating. Or, uh, so yes, there, and so there's, so I don't do well with a lot of people. I don't think it is. I don't think it's, no, I don't think it is. We have theories about that. Um, There's a number of things. So the snow last week kept us out of our, what would be the introductory class to prepare us for your coming. And so we didn't have the opportunity as a class to discuss as one thing um, what it is that we probably would have asked you or would have liked to know or to cover the things that we read in Brown Town Well, I, you know, I'm just, I, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> I just don't saying. know, though, because we had that with Professor Glick-Schiller, and, and the class was, I think there were maybe two or three of us that, that spoke up when she came. And they're always the same people. I think that, is there? here's the thing, I know I'm not the smartest person in that room, so I'm, you know, I might as well go ahead and ask the questions that I have <laughs> because, and not be afraid of looking dumb because I know I'm not the smartest. But um, I, but I, I feel like maybe that there's that kind of intimidate. I'm not getting into theories now. Anyway, so the upshot <laughs> is that it's always a, it's an ongoing effort. Okay, um, and that's why I'm very honored to be here because you know it is. We write these things in, in private, no matter how much we work with other people. Uh, and then you send them out into the world. Mm -hmm. And you don't know if they're going to get any reception. I mean, I'm going to be, I'm writing a whole new book on a whole new topic, reading a whole new different set of things. And so when I see, like, uh, Professor Barrett, Rusty Barrett, I love his work. His work is extraordinary as a linguist. And I can't keep up with it because my, so, I feel sort of like I'm skipping like a stone across the, you know, so many deep waters that could be explored. Mm -hmm. So it's always a challenge. Mm -hmm. It's always a challenge. And actually there are much better teachers, far better teachers I've seen. Some people have great talents at being able to connect with large groups of people. Um, and I haven't really um, allowed or chosen not to explore and put the energy into doing that. Mm -hmm. So if you choose to be a teacher, uh, an instructor, a professor in a teaching uh, setting, that's that's the major goal. Um, I think with, with your, if you have a passion for that, that you can become very good at it. 
uh, and I'm really conflicted. Um, you were speaking about the metaphors that are currently in place in our understanding of what education is. Mm -hmm. And um, coming from the College of Education, this is my interest, um, I was wondering what you would say is the place of education in combating these metaphors as it currently stands and as <coughs> we understand it. Um, Good question. And then looking at that, taking that a step further, combating um, or working to remove racism um, from the way that we orient ourselves to bilingual education or um, to multilingual education and to the, you know, education. U.S. imaginary other um, and in that context. So. I have had so little... I, last year I spoke at a major school of education about the issues, and they thought I was naive. Yeah. Uh, when I spoke about the fact that uh, the, the whole reform agenda the last 20 years, uh, with the mil millions and millions of dollars uh, submitted by, uh, by Gates and other people, uh, to, to change the face of public education or the teaching structure, the institutional structure, is is, is not a change at all. Right, right. There's been the the school as factory model right. changed to a school as business model right. is is no change. Yeah, and, and, and sorry to interrupt, you know. even on the social level, I mean, well, not necessarily social, but the way you were discussing in your own educational experiences working with Genders and gardeners, that has not changed much either. Um, the color of faculty has not changed much. <laughs> and, um, no, I'm, I'm the, the biggest organization, the most gratifying organization I go to is the Ford Fellows. I'm, I have received a fellowship from the Ford, uh, and they've, uh, for 50 years, they put money into getting uh, people of color yes. into the academy. So we get together once a year. And it's the most joyful moment mm -hmm. because it's and now it's the diversity is a rich super diversity yeah. uh, that the Ford attempts to to bring uh, not simply race but that is so gratifying because you but you know we all sit there and soak up each other's joy and we yeah. encourage each other because we know we're going out again into mm -hmm. uh, a, a very homogeneous mm -hmm. setting where diversity is a, a box that you check off yes. rather than a lifestyle yeah. and an expectation. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think we're doing okay. I think, well, it's, it's, we're going too slow. Definitely. I mean, but we did, we did, uh, we did elect an African-American president twice. And uh, that was something that we dreamt of in my generation when we were in our 20s and it took until I was 60 for it to happen but uh, but I'm glad that it is happening so I, I, I there is there's lots of hope uh, the problems are larger but there's many more people of color and, and our allies who are working very very hard 
and um, and it's just actually just raising, uh, uh, making people aware. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's of course going to be pushback. Uh, there's complacency and there's indifference, but I think there's a lot more. We have allies that have to be just tapped and and nurtured and and taught how to help. That's a great question, and I could go on for days on that because it's so important. Well, <laughs> I'll continue this line of questioning. Um, um, so a lot of so this is a question that we formulated long before, but then listening to your talk and then having the opportunity to discuss this with you in class, uh, now I'm even more <coughs> interested in this question about um, a comparison between the metaphors used for Latinos and African-Americans. Um, and there was a lot of resonance and... Um, what are they? So, well, I mean, when we were talking in class, uh, I think Dr. Chasen, it was Dr. Chasen Lopez who brought up the animalization, dehumanization, ah. uh, dehumanization, criminalization... Mm-hmm. Infantilization. And, yes, and infantilization. And immediately I was thinking of these stereotypes of the Uncle Tom and Jezebel mm-hmm. and... and um, the buck and, and all these kinds of sure. um, terms that are used or, or have been modified for you know modern times, of mm-hmm. course, right, to describe the way the the images are used in imagery in creating imagery. I learned I do speak English in creating imagery um, surrounding Black people yeah. and um, in reading one in a hundred and looking at those same metaphors being applied to um, Latinos and uh, that are trying to gain access to the United States. Um, I was just wondering if you could speak a bit to, um, if you've looked at those parallels and um, if you could speak a bit to that. Well, you know that um, the other is, provides the boundaries of what normal is. And so uh, they will be con- those ex- uh, those demeaning, dehumanizing uh, 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 stereotypes and metaphors that build the stereotypes are, are going to be continued to be used. Mm-hmm. They're also very easy to tell a story. It's we uh, storytellers uh, cannot have fully fleshed out villains if you are going to focus on the heroes. Or if you focus on the, uh, well, and so you build stories right. around those stereotypes. It's a natural, easy story to tell, mm-hmm. and um, so we are working against the. the uh, we're we're we're, dry, we're 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 gonna have to um, swim upstream, but I think that we can do it like salmon each and every day, every uh, cycle, and push against it all the time. I don't think it's going to change in in many generations uh, because we're talking about uh, um, corporate media mm-hmm. that yeah. make money at maintaining stories and pe- maintaining people's face time with, their, with the, the monitor, the, the television set, and your, uh, your you know, iPhones. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I don't know. Your question led me to think about a lot of things all at once, and so it. Um, so I, I think I'm. 
so yes, uh, yes, there are parallels. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, the the metaphors are going to be the same. Uh, they are always demeaning. They're always limiting, and they're always delimiting, so that they allow the 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 normal to sit comfortable and and self assured in a place of privilege. But the more that we question what privilege is, uh, and the more we recognize, we characterize what the others are as being just as as co-equal uh, in their differences, then um, it will change. But I think it's going to be a long-term process, and it is not profitable for corporations. Uh, it's it, so it's we're really going to be have to fight a long time. That's why I tried to do the work in humor, because I thought possibly I had this glimmer of hope that I could inoculate young people about racist jokes and ra and, and ethnic slurs. Um, I, I don't think it's going to happen, but that's what led me to think about humor, uh, because it, it's a how it affects children in particular. Right. I would be quite interested in hearing you tell us a little bit about, more about your work with humor. I, don't give any secrets away. No, there's, there's no secrets. Um, I mean, it hasn't been written, but I'm, if someone else writes, it'd be great. Um, in 2006, I was uh, leading a class. That was the, the year of the Great Marches, uh, where millions of, of immigrants and their supporters were out on the streets uh, peacefully protesting. And I felt joyous and it was I, I, I could not believe it so my class was on metaphor analysis and I said look at anything you want when it's sort of generous open with whatever and I, I basically said that each time but I guide people this time I really said whatever you want to look at just go ahead and look at it tell me what you want to look at what's the most interesting thing you want to look at on the media dealing with immigrants anything so this kid um, with his feet on my table, uh, with his pants off his off his waist, uh, with a hat over his face, with a just the surliest attitude, said, "I I have asked him twice to put it, take his feet off the desk because actually it was a computer room, and so he has feet next to the keyboard." It was like no respect, and I go. Um, so what, what do you want to look at? And he goes, uh, I love Jay Leno, but I hate his jokes. And that juxtaposition was so cool that I said, yeah, yeah. And he says, oh, I, I have TiVo. He turned out to be summa cum laude graduating uh, and was the smartest kid in the class by far, bar none. Uh, and I couldn't teach him anything. He just... He soaked it all up, just everything. But we could not understand humor. I had never studied humor, never. I'm not very funny, and I just never had pursued it. So, I mean, I didn't even know who Chappelle was. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, so, long story short, I spent a whole summer in the section Every Thursday afternoon, I was there reading everything I could on humor. I just my Thursday afternoon was humor, and I found um, 
a German formalist, a linguist, who had stolen something from the 19th century um, Scott uh, philosopher uh, and then repackaged it as the syntax of humor, of a joke. And he had a whole career on this. And so I was able to use that tool thinking it was Raskin's innovation. And so I published on that. And that just opened the door. I mean, I realized that so I had a, I'd done all the work with on newspapers in Brown Tide Rising, the work on television news in one in a hundred, and none of my students were reading that stuff. There were none of the students. I'm a, when did you watch? When did you guys last watch Brian Williams or any, uh, uh, you know, uh, six o'clock news? Never. Yep. You guys don't. <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm. So trying to get ahead of the curve, I asked the students what they were interested in. Dave, the Daily Show, mm, yeah. uh, you know, John Stewart. They wanted. They were watching Colbert in that time. Yeah. Uh, that's what you guys, your generation, your demographic, is interested in, and so it became extremely interesting for me. So that's why I pursued it. But that, what that led me to do is to realize, within about two years, that Raskin had stolen a lot of stuff, and that linguistics was not the right way. I read this wonderful piece um, by Michael Billig, the British sociologist, on hu the history of philosophy of humor. And Aristotle and Plato have writ wrote seriously about humor. They've, scholars have been working on it. Thank you. Scholars have been thinking, as an aspect of human nature, what does it do for us? Mm -hmm. So that's what led me to ask that question myself and to follow... Billig's book carefully. I read it. It was one of the books I read all the way through and then started again. And I don't do that very often because I I work, I'm a close reader. I can't read fast. I'm a close reader. So my, it was full, my marginalia was rich and I had to write in another color because I had to read it again. And basically the th he told me one thing, that every scholar of, of humor has had a blind spot that their understanding of humor is always even though it's human nature and they're all seeking human nature and hence they're trying to find something which is universal to us as a species or maybe even beyond our species something global something sentient that we're all blinded by cultural limitations mm. so Aristotle was blind to the fact that he was racist, and he attributed uh, uh, that he had, a, the, so slaves were not given any status, and yet he used slaves as his best examples for people laughing. So he, he said, this is how we should understand how laughter takes place. So he didn't see, that's, that was my, that's my, that's my uh, music in the background. That's, <laughs> it finally popped on again, I asked for it to pop on early. So, um, and, and Freud wrote about um, humor. And so he wrote incredible stuff about sex. I mean, his, all his sexual jokes are just amazing and hilarious. But he could not see race. Mm -hmm. He refused to see anti-Semitic issues. Mm -hmm. It was like he was blind to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I said, well, what am I blind to? Well, I realized that I was... My, one of my blind spots is that 
I have been thinking that humor has to be via language, since I'm a linguist. Mm. Since rats, and because there is, I, I laugh just as much at uh, slapstick, uh, uh, keystone cops in a silent era movie, mm. where everything is silent. Buster Keaton, who was a deadpan silent movie actor who made people laugh all the time. Just as much as I laugh at Robin Williams when he is pyrotechnics, his verbal pyrotechnics are overwhelming, right? They're just like all these words are just pouring into you and all these concepts and, and you know, and it's just as funny. I'm doing exactly the same thing. I'm, I'm laughing with just as much in just the same way. And we laughed in just the same way, whether it's silent and nonverbal or verbal. So I realized humor could not be verbal, fundamentally. <laughs> yes, yeah. I said I cannot be a linguist. I'm going to be. I'm. I'm, in my, I'm going to be a, heret a heretic. <laughs> and so I looked for theories. And there's a theory by a man, uh, 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 Matthew Gervais, and his and his uh, advisor, uh, Wilson. Scott Wilson, I think. Sloan Wilson. Sloan Wilson, it, Gervais was the undergraduate, and he wrote his senior thesis, which was uh, an evolutionary anthropology of the origin of humor. When we were hairy, three foot tall, and had tails. Before the division, when, when the antecedents of today's chimpanzees and our antecedents were one and the same, we laughed together. And so that led me to think about how to think about humor in a different way. Now, what that, what that allows me then to do is to place um, Robin Williams and, and, and you know, uh, Jonathan Swift and um, Aristophanes and as different kinds of verbal humor culturally, uh, cultural aspects of humor, but that the foundations of laughter and humor are pre-human. Okay, and so that gives me another angle on things. So that's what I'm gonna write about. I will look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, and uh, I'm also working right now with undergraduates who took my class, um, I told them it was completely experimental. I had no idea what it was, and the only I told them what the the midterm and the final question were. The midterm question is, what makes something funny? Which is a a question that philosophers are fighting with, and if and so they can learn all what the different philosophers say, right? But then when they have to, and they always find out the flaws in what the philosophers have said. Then when they have to do themselves in three in one page, what what's your thesis of what makes something funny? That was their the mid midterm sign. That's all they had to do. It was a really challenging uh, midterm. But three of them had insights. Three of them had insights that could really contest what the best philosophers of the nineteenth century were thinking mm. when they posed that question. Mm -hmm actually gave insight. And so it's in us. 
not to say it's in us. I think I want to sort of crowdsource this question eventually because I think we can nail it down in a way if we all put our heads together about it. Philosophers have been doing this privately. You know, Kant never talked to anybody. Uh, you know, uh, Schopenhauer hated everyone else, right? He thought he was so much more intelligent. Yeah. And all these people are doing it. And if you're modest um, and ask a simple question, I think we can get some interesting answers. So you'll see that a few years later when I finally get this all written up. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> we are running a little short on time. <laughs> Just a little bit. It's 10.25. You have an appointment at 11, correct? Yeah. yeah. So we want to make sure we... We're good. I mean, they're going to text me. Okay. And since you can hear it now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Just double we'll, check. We'll hear it. I'm cool. Okay. Good. If you want to take a break, we can too. I have another question. <laughs> I don't think it's on. It's your turn. Well, okay, I just want to make sure I'm not taking up nope. what questions that y'all wanted to talk about. No, we're, just we're good. Keep it okay. So, I grew up watching, my dad was born in 1953. I grew up watching all the westerns that he loves the Virginian, the Rifleman, Paladin from? from Alabama. Um, and he grew up very, very poor, no indoor plumbing until he was 10. Dad was an alcoholic. He loves these westerns, the oh, searchers. Man, of course. Yeah, and so um, I like the rifleman the best. That's his favorite. I know. I know. <laughs> um, so I'll have to tell him. Um, I identified with a little boy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I got a I got a Winchester toy Winchester when I was a boy. That was oh he he had a BB gun too and yeah uh, that's what I had graduated to <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my mom took it away when he realized I was getting good at it. <laughs> <laughs> See in South Alabama there are always squirrels and possums to shoot so it was you know it was it was okay he lived out in the country. Um, I, I kind of started to think about it um, and I realized that all these 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 older white guys who are in power now kind of are around the same age and okay. grew up watching oh, I see. watching those same westerns. Jindal was not watching that sort of stuff though. No, Bobby Jindal? No, he was not. <laughs> um, I kind of wanted, do you think that there's, do you think that there's any kind of, of connection? You think that those, growing up watching the, the cowboys, the, the heroes, has any influence on our leadership today? Oh and God. I think I'm thinking especially of Bush, but you can apply it to a lot more people. So what do you, what do you think about that? Yes. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> the end. <laughs> Look at neoconservatism. Mm. I mean, uh, and the reaction, the automatic reaction of, of uh, in any international crisis to go out and bomb them, mm -hmm. you know? send out the special forces and if we are afraid to send out the special forces well we'll just bomb them from our drones mm -hmm. so now we've automated our uh, cowboy force mm -hmm. we don't have to send in the cavalry we send in the drones but we're doing precisely the same thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and you know what <laughs> And the, the democrats aren't any better I mean, they're, they are complacent. They're not saying this is impossible to continue. I'm just... We are yeah. cowboys. I'm wondering how we could kind of harness that 
those principles and turn them into a different way. For example, um, very close to my dad, and when I realized we had different views on immigration, I wanted to talk to him about that. And <laughs> oh my so, God, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> we could, we talk about everything, um, and so uh, you know, I was kind of talking to him and, and presenting you know some economic arguments, and um, you know, he just he wasn't convinced. And I said, well, Dad, you know. Um, if, if we were living in a place um, that was terrorized by drug lords, if we were living in a place where you were afraid that you know your children would go out and perhaps be shot, if you were living in a place where you mm-hmm. couldn't provide for mm-hmm. us, would you would you illegally immigrate to a place that was safe for us? And he said, like hell, I would. Yes, of course. You know. And I said, well, you know, that's the same position. So kind of looking at it. If, I mean, that's kind of the same heroic narrative, seeing, you know, like this this cowboy guy is going to take his family, he's going to do whatever it takes, he's going to transgress, transgress those boundaries in order to save his family, mm-hmm. in order to be the hero. Mm-hmm. And taking... It's not even being the hero, it's being what is right. Yes, yeah, yes. It's, it's, yeah, it's a no, it's, it's what must be done. Yeah, and then it becomes the hero and, yeah. People think, call him the hero. Mm-hmm. But the hero doesn't think himself a hero. He's just doing what has to be done. Yes. Right? Yes. So he's not, you know, he's not polishing his badge. He's, he's just riding off into the sunset when his work is done. When his work is done. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm wondering how maybe taking, it would be interesting to apply some of the cowboy narrative to, to immigrant stories. Because I wonder if that could be a bridge between maybe uh, these very, very conservative mindsets. A lot of them are, are good people, but having them understand it from from this standpoint, because my dad's view kind of changed when I presented it that way. Yeah, but it's a little more nuanced than that, mm-hmm. because it's going to be people who don't sound like him, and don't look like him. Not your father, but right, right. It's other people. other 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 uh, people who are already upset, entirely upset at, at too many of those other people. I mean, I'm I'm from Arizona, so uh, I wrote a whole. I put an anthology together on the anti-immigrant and anti-ethnic and anti-racial uh, attitudes that go on in Arizona, uh, in an effort to try to maintain a world, a nostalgia for a world that never existed. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's uh, it's a little more problematized, yeah. more, more complicated, and. Uh, I could well imagine if it would be the easiest would be, of course, if the people looked and sounded as close to them as you know as they are, and it's harder as you get further and further away, and the culture becomes more and more complicated, different. Uh, when classes and issues of of culture are added, because people are not willing to upset their lives. That's very true. I mean, just think about just changing your food habits, you know. It's really challenging, much less having a whole new group of people. It's amazing when people do that. There is actually a lot of studies done on how to bring and negotiate uh, new immigrant populations in there because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. But typically it's young people who are able to be the bridges for the elders to be able to make amends. And so they hope they're always asking the youngest generation, the children, to become friends with the others, 
and and the grandparents come along grudgingly. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to give you then some time um, before you go out on your exotic bourbon tour. But yes, thank you so much. You've been you more than kind and gracious. Well, thank you. Your questions, and, and I wish you best. Thank you for listening. And thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences, the Committee on Social Theory, and Social Theory 600 Transnational Lives for making this podcast possible.